Welcome to The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that's gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor and your host, Michael Pryor. Episode 7, Omir, Anaquist's First King. Omir Anaquist, the grandson of Eucanthor Anaquist, ruled from 200 to 205. A short reign, but a colourful one, highlighted by one extraordinary event, the Autumn Plot, which will form the core of this episode. In the best sort of teaser start, let's call Omir a warrior, a thinker, a man of both action and reflection, a monarch who never thought of himself as a ruler of a land, but as more a protector of its people. Let's start with the sources, get them up front. The annals, of course, form the heart of our primary sources. Omir's entry is surprisingly long for such a short reign, and there's some consensus that he may have actually written some parts of it himself, which wasn't something his mother or his grandmother undertook. Then we have Velmon with all his strengths and weaknesses. Long on gossip and lurid detail about those close to Omir, not so much about the politics, economics or diplomatic relations with other states and realms. Still, his story about Omir's cousin Salandra and the fancy dress party is uproarious fun, especially the part about the pig and the chandelier. Well worth a read. Megra on governments is stodgy, but where would we be without stodgy historians? He approves of Omir's efforts to reform the justice system that had grown somewhat ad hoc since Eucanthus' time, so hang on to your hats. But we do have something remarkable when we look at primary sources, and these are the martial letters by Omir himself. A series of personal missives, if you like. He wrote over a period of 20 years uh, to all his five offspring, ostensibly to educate them in matters to do with defending the realm the head start, if you like, detailing what he saw as the most important functions of a ruler. Many of these letters are reflections written soon after battles, campaigns or encounters, and they cover matters such as tactics, logistics and supply issues and the role of training. Some go into more philosophical territory, though, such as the role of the general and the utility of war, grappling with the question of its ultimate utility, asking, essentially, What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. They're a remarkable survival from these early days of Anaquist and they give us an insight into Omir himself. And it's from these thoughtful letters that Omir gets the nickname the Writer King. As for secondary sources, we have Dromka's 17th century The Monarchs of Anaquist and that's still valuable, no matter how much the text has been disputed since then. But Omir's reign has attracted some of the most incisive modern historians. In his Stilchen, for example, her early aristocratic families of Anarchists is revolutionary in its documentary approach. Oscar Handgarten isn't just comprehensive, he has a vivid turn of phrase and the knack for a memorable metaphor. But I'd like to pay particular attention to another text, uh, one that doesn't get a lot of currency, really. And this is Waxing and Waning by Nguyen Chin. It's a historical novel rather than an academic work, and it's fantastic. 
Historical figures come alive in this book and we can see them as human beings with hopes and desires, uh, foibles and strengths. And her dialogue isn't full of those arch archaisms that you sometimes come across in historical novels. It's fresh and natural with enough of the flavour of a bygone era to put us there and, and working well with the setting and the events. Nguyen Chin has done her research meticulously, and it's a wonderful page-turner, concentrating on the autumn plot, naturally. I look forward to whatever the next book is. Omi's Early Years and the Family Matters Omi had two sisters, Eliana and Cordula, and one brother, Pantaleon, and he was, was the second oldest in the four. One sister, Eliana, dies aged 19, killed when trying to negotiate with a band of renegade raiders to become her personal army, all in an effort to secure her nod for the succession. Before succeeding to the throne at the age of 61, because of the long reign of his mother, Omir spent much of his time with the army in one role or another, captaining skirmishing squads and routine patrols or establishing border forts, eventually rising to become Lord Marshal, the, the head of all Anarchist military, a position he kept when he came to the throne. He was the first Anarchistian monarch to do so. And succession. This is always an intriguing topic with the Anarchists. How does one achieve the crown when it's up for grabs, as the system was instituted by Eucanther Anarchist those years ago? How does one of the royal offspring convince the reigning monarch that they're the one fit to take the throne. Bribery, skullduggery, last person standing? Well, in Omir's case, it's a case of, yeah, nah. Omir was chosen to be the successor because his mother, Kenilla I, was impressed by his dedication to learning a dizzying variety of martial skills and his growing competence in military matters. In his martial letters, he admits that his very early fanaticism with arms and armour came basically from fear. Both his sisters, and also his brother, were brutal, attempting to browbeat him into declaring that he wasn't at all interested in the throne. And several consecutive bouts of childhood illnesses left him a sickly little kid. Learning to defend himself was the only sensible course of action, and gradually, with the help of successive castle masters-at-arms, he discovered a natural aptitude for swordplay, archery and the quarterstaff, and his relentless practice only consolidated the skill. He added facility with more weapons, ranging from the familiar to the exotic, but never neglecting various iterations of hand-to-hand unarmed combat too, until he was recognised as peerless throughout the land. Gradually, after Omia rendered each of his siblings senseless when they attacked him, his siblings resorted to more subtle methods of eliminating him from contention, and none of these were successful. As well as thriving in active military service, Omia also developed a keenness for the theory and philosophy of war. His favourite texts mentioned the letters of Fisden, the best form of defence is a good defence, and Milkwood, Masters of War. Both, unfortunately, are lost, and we wouldn't know about them uh, if it weren't for Omir's mentioning them in his letters. Even though he was a thoughtful strategist, he was no warmonger, though. Omir never instituted a war of expansion or even of retribution. Uh, 
and all of his successful campaigns were defensive to save the realm. His character? Reserved, thoughtful, controlled, along the lines suggested in the military texts he almost knew by heart. He had no time for luxury and lived a Spartan lifestyle. He saw himself as the protector of Anarchist rather than the ruler, and he was the first of the monarchs of Anarchist to have several committees of advisers, experts in various areas, and he delegated some decision-making powers to them. Again, a hitherto unusual step in the monarchy, but one that was perpetuated and became part of the governance of the city-state hereafter. Highlights of Omir's reign? Omir came to the throne at the age of 61, thanks to his mother's 80-year reign. In his time, he continued Queen Kenlil's consolidation, and Anarchus continues to grow in power and riches and prestige. The work in the Hypogeum, removing the scales from the body of the dead god, proceeds apace, and the magical adepts who have been drawn to Anarchus as a reliable source of high-quality scales is starting to thrash out some important principles of magic during Omir's reign. Omir defends Anarchus from major incursions in 201 and 203, both from wildland raiders who assembled in startling numbers. The 203 incursion was later found to have been supported with both money and troops by Dardanae, a proto-country to the far west, whose decline began with this defeat so much so that within 40 years it was no more. Much of Lowtown was raised in this attack, and most of the population had to flee to safety behind the walls of the stronghold. The wool industry was making its mark in the last decade of Kenlil's reign, and it experiences a boom in the early years of Omir's ascendancy, with pastoralists claiming land around what was growing into a city by this time. Something he was pleased to encourage the wool industry, as Soma saw the utility in diversifying Anarchus' economy, which until then had been totally dependent on the fabulous riches derived from the body of the dead god. A consequence of this wool boom was barge traffic on the Gefo River increased substantially, and in some places it was made more navigable. Relations with Arenthia continued strongly and an agreement of free trade was established between the two realms. As well as the overland route, shipping along the coast increased and the rich merchant vessels, wool, scales, timber mostly, proved to be temptations for pirates whose numbers increased substantially in this period. In response, King Omir ordered the establishing of a formal anarchist navy, to succeed the somewhat haphazard seagoing military Anarchist had relied on to this date. And he nominated his brother Pantaleon as its High Admiral, perhaps to put some distance between him and the throne. Land at the mouth of the Gefo River, on the other side to the port town of Miro, was given over to a walled naval base and arsenal for the construction of what we'd call polyremes for the next few centuries producing warships with many banks of oars ranging from biremes obviously two banks through to quinqueremes and the rare mention of a 20 20 banks of oars although that's disputed significant winter rains in the middle year of omir's reign caused moderate flooding of the gefo river and the docks at beacon were damaged 
This was a boon, to tell the truth, because the structures that were washed away were ramshackle and much in need of updating. The replacements were much sturdier and allowed much more access to larger ships and more commerce. In the first year of his reign, Omir instituted something that we'd see as a cross between the Olympic Games and a large tournament. Contests of swordplay, archery and horse riding skills of various sorts were held amid much pomp, but also athletic competitions of running, jumping and throwing. Plus, even some poetics and drama productions were part of this grand event. It was held in the spring of 200, the first year of Amir's reign, and he received much acclaim from the people for the event, even though he declined to compete in any of the bouts, despite the urging of the crowd. The week-long celebration was held in a temporary structure to the north of Lotan, held in and held around it. But it was such a success that in 201 the Games were held again, but in a large purpose-built arena this time. Hugely popular, the Games became an annual thing through the rest of Omir's reign, but petered out in the 250s during the reign of King Prescon, who had little interest in what he saw as plebeian affairs. King Omir died in 205, by far the shortest reign of any of the monarchs of Anarchist to this date. In sword-fighting practice, some of his armour rubbed nastily in his armpit, breaking the skin. He became infected, and he died of what we'd call sepsis, an ignominious end in some ways, the warrior king brought low by the smallest of foes. Omir's five-year reign has a prominence far beyond its short time span, however. One event is responsible for this, and it spawned discussion, arguments, contention and dispute, as well as plays, novels and a couple of operas. And I wouldn't be surprised if multiple major streaming services haven't got high-quality series in production with a raft of well-known actors. And quietly, I'm available to consult on any or all of these projects, and also available for small speaking parts. Call me. This tumultuous event in the reign of King Omir is the Autumn Plot. First, let's consider sources for this most signal event in the reign of King Omir. The annals, of course, form the backbone of our understanding of what went on as long as we understand their authorised nature. Given that, the record of King Omir's reign is notably frank. Contemporary sources, or near-contemporary anyway, include Megra on governments, the 4th century text, which uses Omni's reign as an example of the potential dangers of encouraging an aristocracy or ruling class. Belmont's The Truth doesn't mention the conspiracy much at all, preferring to pour over the comings and goings in the ribald theatre scene during Omir's reign and the doings among the distributed court. A fancy dress party, remember? Official proceedings against the conspirators uh, do exist, as do the execution orders, which detail the charges against the main culprits. Taxation records and some temple documents are also relevant here. Fragments of a play, which has been dated to about 80 years after the events, still exist, and this lampoons the parties in the plot 
And many later historians have sifted through this, cutting back the exaggerations to try to establish factual detail behind the japery. Omiya's own martial letters only mention the autumn plot in passing, noting how several army positions had to be filled after the execution of a number of high-ranking officers who were part of the plot. As for later historians and commentators, the 17th century Dromka, the monarchs of Anarchist, it's still valuable, but you've got to take everything, Dromka says, with a grain of salt. More recently, studies into the autumn plot have exploded. I have to take my hat off to Inner Stilchen, the early aristocratic families of Anarchist, because it's a work of dogged persistence. I shudder to think of the number of mouldy records she had to plough through. Her work is studded with moments of piercing insight. The way she connects seemingly disparate elements is actually exciting. Two other books have taken the work of Stilchen, acknowledging it and praising it extensively, and concentrated on the autumn plot exclusively. Oscar Handgarten's book leaves no doubt about the subject with its title, The Autumn Plot, published in 1989. It follows the plot from its early days right through to the unfortunate end of the main players, but it doesn't neglect to examine the links between the two families who are responsible and certain other realms across the continent, making the case that the plot wasn't simply a case of personal animosity, but it was a concerted conspiracy to remove the Anarchist family with the help of overseas agents and money. The other book I've already mentioned, but I'm going to plug it again, and it's probably looked down upon by historians, but that isn't going to stop me both enjoying it and respecting its depth of research. Waxing and Waning is a historical novel rather than an academic work, but I like it because Nguyen Chin, the author, brilliantly brings to life the main characters and gives them voices, making them rich and rounded human beings with all their flaws, <laughs> so many flaws, uh, and their ambitions and desires. It's a great read as well as a wonderfully comprehensive narrative of what otherwise could be a confusing affair to the outsiders. Of course, if you're looking for entertainment, there's always Jabez Soames, the 19th century eccentric who claimed that King Omir was actually a ghost and that the autumn plot was actually the name for an extravagant dinner party where one of the guests died from overeating. I like to think that if Jabez Soames were around today, he'd be a ufologist or someone who camped out in the woods looking for Bigfoot or Yetis. His motto always seems to be, why go with facts? when you can go with speculation. So let's start with the big picture of the autumn plot. In 202, two noble families, uh, the Ali and the Burchards, hatched a plot to assassinate Omir, uh, his three children, and the advisor to the throne, Vina Jethormales, all at precisely the same time, and then to take control of the city-state as sort of a ruling junta, an oligarchy comprising their families alone. The plot failed and retribution was both measured and swift. Enough of the big picture. Let's get both nitty and gritty. Both the Burchards and the Ali were prominent noble families in Anarchist, uh, descendants of Cakes Burchard and Isaura Ali, companions of Yukantha Anarchist back in the first century, accompanying her on the grand expedition that found the body of the dead god. You know the adventuring type, rough and ready, adaptable, loyal to a fault, not too worried about bodily hygiene. 
Cakes Birchard and Isara Ali. These two adventurers were good friends, and after the discovery of the Heavenfall and with happy approval of Eucantha Anarchist, they claimed land on a ridge just to the north of what had become the road to Beacon, the river port. These claims became considerable estates with rich farming and hunting land upon which substantial... I suppose you call them villas or manors were built. Trying to establish the background of Cakes Birchard and Isaura Ali is difficult, as it is for almost all of Yakantha Anarchist's followers. So much attention is paid to her that the rest of the company sometimes treated as spear carriers, extras in the widescreen movie that is Yakantha Anarchist's epic. Nevertheless, modern historians tend to agree that the preponderance of Yakantha Anarchist's followers came from Jellocks, as she did probably a good third of them. And this is where it gets interesting because some clever investigation from Ines Stilchen, whose monumental and ongoing investigation into the early aristocratic families of Anarchist, has uncovered that Cakes Burchard and Isaura Ali, they both came from Ulm, the small city-state in the far southwest of the continent, thousands of leagues away from Anarchist and Jellocks. Few other details can be found about these two, but they were definitely part of Yucantha and Aquist's pirate crew. Uh, sorry, 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 her freebooting band. Their remote and somewhat mysterious origins from this somewhat mysterious land of Ulm may have been responsible for their closeness and the way they may have felt just a bit different from the others. Could be the beginnings of disaffection, perhaps? Most of this is supposition, though. The fact is that the Birchards and the Arleys were in good stead through Eucantha Anarchist's reign and the reign of her daughter and successor, Kendall I. Their estates prospered according to the taxation rolls and the names of family members are recorded in records of various advisory groups. Uh, for example, Ligia Ali, one of the daughters of Esaura Ali, she has her name listed as the head of a committee in charge of public hygiene and waterworks in the 130s. So they're well embedded in the city-state of Anarchist. Disaffection or antipathy towards the Anarchist must have been growing for some time, but it came to a head in the reign of our King Omia. The head of the Burchard family at the time of the plot was Leander Burchard. He had five siblings, four sisters and a brother, all of whom were implicated in the plot. The head of the Ali family at the time was Petronia Ali, and she was the only daughter of Pia and Sanctius Ali. Ligia Ali, remember, in charge of public hygiene and waterworks, was one of her aunts. The two families had intermarried and were probably more effectively considered a clan that wielded considerable political and economic power in these early days of the Anarchist state. It can't be overstated the importance of the prestige that was then and still is now attached to anyone who could trace their family back to one of the original band of adventurers who accompanied Eucantha Anarchist. Both the Birchards and the Arleys leveraged this as much as possible. The reasons for the attempted coup of the autumn plot, the disputed, even at the time, claim and counterclaim about their motives rage, but that can be fairly and squarely put in the it's-not-fair basket. More or less, both families felt that they'd been treated poorly by the Anarchists in areas of taxation, preferment, tactical marriages, diplomatic and official posts, land grants, army positions, and on and on and on. The list of areas where the plotters felt they'd been hardly done by is long, and in many places really, really petty. 
For example, one of Dromka's anecdotes recounts that a minor offshoot of the Ali family felt that Prescon, Amir's second son, continually mocked him by constantly dressing in the same colours as he did. See, that's the level of some of the peevishness that swelled to become an attempted coup. And it's as true then as it is now. If you go looking for offence, you'll find it. From little things, big things grow, like letting that tender spot on your gum become $10,000 of painful dental work. Regardless of the motive, the actions of the Birchards and the Arleys are clear. The heads of both families committed to Hagamaga and vowed to topple the Anaquist dynasty, starting with this coordinated series of assassinations, to be followed by the timely appearance of supportive military forces from Arenthia and Brel, all neatly organised with equally disaffected parties in both those city-states. All of this sounds good, but the downfall of the plot lay in its execution. Yes, see what I did there? Even though the conspirators bound all those involved with blood-curdling oaths promising painful deaths to any traitors, the plot leaked like a rusty colander. City officials, army officers and members of the royal household were besieged by junior family members offering to inform, hand over letters and generally finger the key plotters. Rosters had to be established to take down details. Such was a scramble to denounce and scribes were working 16-hour days and on the verge of breakdown. The informants weren't all looking for monetary reward either. Some simply wanted to distance themselves from actions that could result in their heads being separated from their bodies with an axe, while others did it out of spite, not being invited to birthday parties or similar, if human nature was the same as then as it is now. And I'll leave that up to you to judge. Of this mass denouncing, the senior members of both families were unaware, which is the equivalent of someone sleeping in Big Ben and every hour waking up and saying, what's that noise? And so their plan went ahead. After much scheming and apparently much drinking, a propitious day was selected where the king would be on his customary stroll through the North Market part of Lowtown, a tradition he established early in his reign, being a man of the people with particular partiality to seasonal fruit. The children, teenagers at the time, were each at separate places, a library, a martial training area and the home of a lover. The advisor, Vina Genthormales, was hard at work meeting with functionaries of the Royal Accounts Department, deep in the keep. The multiple sites and the coordination necessary immediately made the assassination a difficult task even for careful and clever assassins. Unfortunately for the Burchards, their numbers included many bunglers and incompetents, enthusiastic but simply inept. With the deluge of informants and the poor quality of the implementers, the odds of success were low. And as it turned out, the long shot didn't romp home and each attempted assassination was bungled, to the extent that two of the killers couldn't even find their nominated target. A mighty hue and cry went up after the attempt on the king, who was surrounded by plain-clothes bodyguards, and all of the assassination attempts were stymied. The ringleaders were rounded up before they had news of the failure of the scheme, and prisons were soon bulging with the guilty. Several low-ranking conspirators managed to flee Anaquist and evade capture, one of whom ended up in Ulm, 
spending his life denying that he knew anything about any plot, anywhere, no siri. As the case of attempted regicide, Homer dispensed sentences himself, not allowing the poorly organised justice system to handle the affair. And that's a podcast for another day, the evolution and the overhauling of the anarchist justice system. 47 executions were conducted and carried out on the same day, with the bodies of the two family heads left dangling in front of the keep. That might sound ruthless, but graffito has been found dating to this period, scoffing at Omir the Soft-Hearted. And that's episode 7, King Omir I, Anaquist's first king. Keep an eye out for episode 8 coming soon. And make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. This is Michael Pryor signing off. Until next time. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell.